When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Where does America's belief and faith in the freedom of expression come from? Stephen Solomon is Associate Director of the Carter Journalism Institute at New York University and the author of Revolutionary Dissent, How the Founding Generation Created the Freedom of Speech. He looked at the culture surrounding the discussions of political protest and dissent, of whether it's possible and legal to criticize officials, and how in pre-revolutionary America, the colonists really went about criticizing those in power and got away with it. He talks about the way in which freedom of speech became ingrained in American culture and how this understanding informed both our popular and our legal debates to this day. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Welcome, I am sitting here with Stephen Solomon. Thank you so much, Stephen, for joining me today on Think About It. It's completely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I've been looking forward to this conversation, Stephen. So you teach in the Department of Journalism at NYU, you're the Associate Director of the Institute. And you have a book that you actually you brought, which is just a fascinating book about the generation of the nation's founders and how this first generation, the founding generation, created what we consider freedom of speech. It's called Revolutionary Dissent. And can you say a little bit how you got interested in these people over 200 years ago in the 17, I guess, 70s, 80s, something like that, what they did, a lot of offensive things <laughs> to assert their freedom of speech? Sure. Well... You know, this this goes to my teaching. I've been teaching First Amendment for about 20 years to freshmen, freshman seminar, and also to graduate students. And what I found is they knew very little about the history. We would focus on cases, uh, typically from the second half of the 20th century. But what was the sort of the historical precursors to that? And there were all kinds of strands of of thought in various decisions. But I thought that going back and actually doing research into what was done in the, during the founding period and how freedom of speech became ingrained in the American culture at that point would add a lot to the course. And so as I did more and more of that, I thought, well, maybe there's actually a book in this. And this is the history you write is a really exciting history. It's not dry history of legal decisions and wrangling over the Constitution. It's right before the Constitution, right before independence. Oh, a, yeah. Well, I mean, there is dry history because there's legal doctrine. And that's the, the doctrine the, the patriots were rebelling against. And the legal doctrine said that, you know, you were free to publish, free from prior restraints that came from England. But once you published something, you were completely responsible for what you said and responsible to the extent that if you criticized the government, criticized a royal governor or parliament, 
you were subject to actually prosecution. I mean, people were put in jail for this in the 17th century in America. But then once the, the rebellion really started, you know, with the, the Stamp Act and the people started coming out and, and saying this is not fair taxation or the re representation and all of that, it became a political movement. And people were protesting and everything that they did in protest was technically a violation of seditious libel laws. And so if you trace all the things that were done and you look at, you know, the pamphlets and the newspapers and the essays on the one hand, but then what was done in the streets with effigies and liberty trees, liberty poles, it was a very rich era of protest and the public sphere just grew and grew exponentially. So, and this is at a moment when the American colonies are fairly small. Boston is a, for us, it's not even a suburb, right? The size is some. Oh, well, yes. I mean, I think it was the population was something like three million or so. Okay. So around, these are around the time of the, the revolution. Okay. Of all of the colonies? Of all the colonies. So these towns are small, but you. Yeah, but I you mean, Boston was about 16,000 people. 16,000 people. But you're saying so, that what they communicated, it wasn't just written pamphlets and newspapers, but they communicated in other ways because they wanted to reach as many people as they could. Right. And so the educated people were essentially reading what was coming off the presses. There were about, you know, three dozen newspapers or so on the eve of the revolution. They were published by people who owned presses, and they also put out pamphlets and broadsides, you know, things that handouts. But the pamphlets and the essays things that were published in the newspaper were primarily directed to people who are well-educated, you know, the politicians, the merchants, the lawyers. So these are people who had a good education. They understood English law. They understood the history going way back, and they were English colonies. But with the passage of the Stamp Act, the patriots, those who were opposed to the, the Stamp Act, I'll call them patriots, uh, although this is in a very early stage, what they realized very quickly is that they were not going to persuade Parliament to rescind the stamp tax without demonstrating that it was a broad-based movement. And they couldn't do that with pamphlets because not enough people were educated enough to, mm -hmm. to really understand them and act on them. So in Boston, what they did is they reached out to the masses of people. And they, when I say they, it was the, the, a group called the Royal Nine, which was a kind of a precursor to the Sons of Liberty. And these were merchants and others, uh, politicians, and they reached out to a fellow, Ebenezer McIntosh. So Ebenezer McIntosh was a shoemaker. Oh, right. Yeah, you have that case in the yeah. book, right? So, and he was actually the leader of a gang in Boston. Uh, see, the, the, North, the North Gang and the South Gang would fight every year. Gangs were not like we think about gangs today. But they would have a free-for-all every year, the north and south side of towns. And Ebenezer McIntosh was the leader of the south side. Mm -hmm. And they prevailed in 1764. And so he became the leader. He knew everybody. So it was logical for the merchants and the lawyers and the politicians to reach out to a fellow like McIntosh who kind of knew everybody and could get out a big assembly. So they engaged him to create effigies of the British prime minister and the stamp distributor, which was uh, someone in Boston, an American, and they put effigies up on the tree. They Wait, it, but I thought there was a third effigy. Well, the third effigy <laughs> I was going to get to. Yeah, I want to hear about the <laughs> because, third effigy as because well. Because that's right, the one where it gets interesting. Right, that's where it really gets interesting. <laughs> they identified the biggest elm tree in town, which also was on the way into town, so everybody mm -hmm. had to pass it by. 
and they yeah, they put these effigies on a tree one early one morning at 6 a.m. And with those two effigies of the British Prime Minister and the stamp distributor was an effigy of the devil. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so we, the point is pretty clear. Even if you can't read the law, you don't know who these people even are. You say these are evil, bad people. And you know, more evil than we think of today, because we might chuckle when we hear something about like the hanging of the devil. But back in 1765, the devil was the representation of all evil mm-hmm. in Puritan theology. Mm-hmm. And so hanging a, an effigy of the devil along with you know, the British prime mm-hmm. minister, let alone the, you know, the, the stamp distributor, mm-hmm. was a, a really radical act and shocking. I mean, shocking to 18th century eyes in Boston. And that would be the case elsewhere, too, in the colonies. And that was really vitriolic speech back then. Mm -hmm. You know what? It didn't say anything. There were no words. Mm -hmm. You don't have to read an essay. You don't have to read a complicated pamphlet which talked about the English Bill of Rights and Magna Carta. When you came out and you saw these effigies hanging, especially with the devil involved, you understood immediately mm-hmm. what was going on and you understood what the issue was. Because the, you know, the, the people who are protesting, the writers, they were disagreeing among themselves why they were against the tax often. And sometimes they went at, at each other. But there was clarity with symbolic speech. And that's what it was, symbolic speech. There was clarity when you went out to Liberty Tree and you saw these effigies swinging in the wind. So it was not only clarity, but it was also kind of honey that attracted the bees. It was a spectacle. So you're saying there was more and more. So in some ways, this is a case or an instance where it alerted people to the power of symbolism, I guess, symbolic speech. We we consider it symbolic speech. It wasn't words, as you said. It's a colony protesting against the ruler abroad. So in some ways, we have many colonies at this time mm-hmm. in the world. I mean, the idea that someone would string the representative of England on a tree next to the devil in any of the other colonies, <laughs> which will take another 160 years for other countries to do the same. So the mood is to go against an unjust regime, a power or control or government that they don't consider. Right, by all means possible. Enlarge the public sphere of political participation right. to involve a lot of people. And the newspapers, if you read the colonial newspapers like the Boston Gazette, the following week, they, they describe what happened. And they say, you know, everybody left their workplaces that day to come out to the Liberty they Tree. They came out to the Liberty Tree. Yeah. And not only, you know, men, owning men could vote, but they made a point of saying that the women and children were among the people at the Liberty Tree. And that was important mm-hmm. um, to spread the protest. And then, of course, they didn't have Twitter or smartphones to take photos or videos, but the accounts that were published in the Boston Gazette and a few other papers were distributed throughout the colony, as the newspapers were, by horseback, sometimes by ship. It it would take about three weeks to get from Boston to South Carolina. But you can actually trace the articles being republished. Going down the coast. And then you can trace the copycats all through the colonies. They're retweeting. Yes, retweeting. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the the copycats put up uh, liberty Mm -hmm. trees all over. So that became a symbol of to go against the undue exercise of power. So in this culture, so where's the opposition here? You said originally these are people who own newspapers, who are educated lawyers, businessmen, merchants, etc. 
really white men with property probably largely, mm -hmm. but then they're including other people already. You say women and children, people who are not enfranchised at all. Right. I mean, most men were not well-educated. They were artisans, maybe ship workers and, and merchants, merchant marine and, and things like that. And they came out to this too. And you had the whole population involved. I mean, the, not literally the whole population, but enough that it would get people's attention. And is there a um, lot of pushback at this point for the governor or the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts? So he's being attacked many times, right, and criticized. So it doesn't power then speak up and say, you cannot do this, you cannot criticize us in this. Well, they did. I mean, you can read the accounts of, for example, uh, rural governor Francis Bernard in Boston writing back to his superiors in London. Of course, it took a while, right? It took like six weeks for, right. for a letter to get to right. London, and then he had to think about it there, and another six weeks back. So and by that time, the situation would, would change quite a bit. But th they were looking for instructions from London often, and they didn't know what to do because as they wrote in their letters, and these are all available, I read them all, and also in their, their private diaries, they were basically saying that the law is in the hands of the people, and they can't enforce it. In Boston, there were at least three attempts in the latter part of the 1760s to prosecute Eads and Gill, who were the two publishers of the Boston Gazette, mm -hmm. Boston Gazette being the most radical paper. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't get indictments. They so couldn't they, get, even though they were, you know, they really had violated seditious libel laws with what they had published. But by that point, so many people were involved in protests, whether they're out in the street talking about this stuff in taverns or in coffee houses, mm -hmm. gathering around liberty trees and so forth. So many people were involved that when the prosecutors would go into court and ask a jury to indict, the juries wouldn't indict the Boston Gazette because to the extent that we know, the feeling was that I'm not gonna put up my neighbor in the hands of the authorities to put in jail because this is exactly what I've done myself and everybody else I know. So it's interesting. So public opinion becomes formalized in this one moment through the jury that actually they're representing the public. Yeah. But you're saying public opinion sort of moved toward it's okay to criticize the authorities. It should be permitted. Right. So, so seditious libel, that's the law we're talking about, it goes back in England to 1275. So it's been on the books for a long, long time. And it was imported, you know, came up, came ashore in the colonies because we're English colonies. But it was challenged here. So the law remained in effect. It was on the books. But it was ignored in practice. Mm -hmm. In practice, the people nullified it, essentially. They right. couldn't get an indictment. In New York, you had a fellow named Alexander McDougall who was arrested for criticizing the New York Assembly, which made a deal to provision British troops in exchange for some commercial bills of credit to enable the merchants to you know, send their, their goods abroad. Mm -hmm. And he was arrested, uh, spent about six months in jail. He was a wealthy merchant. He could have paid bail, but decided not to because he and the Sons of Liberty concocted a plan to make him a martyr. And so you had Alexander McDougall, who was a martyr to, to the liberty of the press, there were just stories all up and down the colonies. I mean, this was a deliberate effort, a deliberate effort. It didn't happen by, by chance. This was all planned to create martyrs, mm -hmm. to get people out on the street, to, by every means possible, use what was available to them to, to protest. And so what you see happening is the birth of a culture where protest, dissent, 
is acceptable. And you said the law came over from England, and you you point out in the book that the law had been in England, although the the British also had freedom of the press, but that they carved out except for seditious libel, and that newspapers could be punished if they published the wrong thing. So they said they had freedom of the press ultimately gained from the 13th to the 17th centuries in England, but they yeah. kept this part sort of on the books and say you could be tried for yeah, so, treason. Yes, so, so very quickly, 1275 was this seditious libel law right. passed by Parliament. 1606, it became even worse because originally a defense that seditious libel was a truthful publication. Right. 1606, the Star Chamber rules that truth is no longer a defense to a seditious libel claim. In fact, truth exacerbated the libel because <laughs> really there was, when you think about it, there's some sense to that because the authorities would have a hard time counteracting a truthful right. criticism, right? So what would they do at that point? And so you had a, a seditious libel, and then with the coming of the printing press, the threat to the crown became enormous because now protests that was done through verbal communication or right. from scribes yeah. writing on parchment or whatever they used. Now you had a printing press, a kind of institutional means mm -hmm. of expanding protest. And so, you know, people could write stuff and, you know, newspapers were born and things like that. So the reaction of the Crown and Parliament was to enact a number of laws for licensing and censorship. So mm -hmm. before publication, mm -hmm. uh, you had to have articles approved. Those who had a printing press had to have a license from the crown. So the two things together, you had pre-publication censorship, licensing and, and censorship. Right. And then if anything got through anyway, you had seditious mm -hmm. libel laws to take care of the dissenters who were not taken care of pre-publication. Right. So it, it was a pretty effective system. Uh, then licensing expired around 1695. Mm -hmm. The parliament didn't reenacted because of uh, largely pressure of commercial pressures because it was a big industry that wanted to be born mm -hmm. the publishing industry so it expired and what was left was seditious libel to control criticism and dissent so the common law of england and blackstone writes about this in his commentaries the common law of england said that freedom of the press in england meant the freedom from prior restraint right. and censorship. So Blackstone is much later as our, our system now, so you're 100 years Yeah, <laughs> but the system that, that was adopted yeah. here was the English system where there was freedom from prior censorship, yeah. but someone who wrote or published was responsible for what he right. or she wrote. And seditious libel meant that you could be prosecuted, and right. it was a crime. We're not talking right. about civil actions. These are crimes. Right. You could be punished for criticism of the policy of uh, a colonial assembly or a policy right. of the royal governor or parliament or the king. And, and so that's what they were rebelling about at that point. How much does it feed into the initial unease, I guess, and then the full-scale rebellion and revolution against British rule? Oh, yes, because, look, they're rebelling against the imposition of a number of taxes, the stamp tax mm -hmm. and then followed by a number of others, and other legislation that they feel are is unfair to the colonies. And you have the Boston Tea Party and the Boston Massacre and uh, all kinds of these publications. But to the extent to which the British government tried to punish dissenters, that created even a stronger sense that what you're dealing with here is an authority that, you know, was bent on 
on punishing and putting people in line. And but you also keep in mind that the colonies are, are 3,000 miles away. And you point out yeah. something interesting. On the one hand, it's a bit of a triumphant story that we gain freedom of speech, freedom of the press. But you're also saying history is quite messy because it's not that with independence, all these things go away. And so your book covers the fact that it's not that all native-born Americans thought this is the good thing and we're never going to impose anything like this and we got rid of this overnight. So you're saying something stays with us and the struggle continues into independence and it's still with yeah. us today. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's very messy because even back then, of course, there's loyalists. Mm -hmm. uh, a pretty significant proportion of the population was loyal to England even through all this. And despite the growing allegiance to freedom of the press, there was also instances where gangs went in and, and destroyed the presses of, of loyalists. Because you know, there, were, there were loyalist right. presses, as you might expect. They weren't all in the, on the Patriot side. There were newspapers right. that were pro-Britain, but they weren't treated very nicely. Was there a fear that to overthrow the people in charge would also just lead to chaos? There's always this kind of anxiety that sort of even loyalists may just have been so fond of the king or parliament, but thought... What are we going to get rid of this? Who's going to, we're going to be in this anarchic? Well, I mean, everybody was fond of the king right up to the revolution. My Rain image did... of the king is from the musical Hamilton. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a very yeah. entertaining image, but yes. it's probably not quite correct. Yeah. Yes. Well, they were blaming the patriots, the, the Sons of Liberty, and all those with them were blaming Parliament, Parliament and the okay. king's ministers mm -hmm. for passing laws and, mm -hmm. and policies that were very onerous and, and violations of of English constitutional law. And so to the very end, they would go out to the, the Liberty Tree. They would mm. do public demonstrations in the street, and then they would repair to the local tavern or coffee house, and they would have toast to the king because they thought that the king was on their side. Oh, interesting, okay. Until at the very end, you know, when they made the final petition to the king, because they gave up on parliament eventually. Mm -hmm. And the king, instead of coming to their aid, declared them to be in rebellion. Hmm. And that's when they knew they were they had no recourse except to war. Hmm. So, so the, the king was someone who was very special in their right. eyes until the very end. But it took the very end for them to realize that he was not going to come to their aid. And in fact, he had his chance to fix things, but he was not on their side. Right. What happens after independence? So what happens with this question of especially the subcategory of seditious libel or generally the right of the press and of individual citizens to criticize the people in power? With the Declaration of Independence, you have now not colonies, but states. And so they had to get together, each one of them, have conventions, mm -hmm. a lot of them in 1776 or 77, and they were had to draw up their own constitutions. Some of the constitutions had bills of rights, right. like the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which actually came in May of 76, surely a couple months before the Declaration of Independence. And so in Virginia, they wrote a constitution and George Mason wrote the Declaration of Rights, which included a provision protecting freedom of the press. And in this sense, it's protecting both against censorship prior to publication and repercussions or punishment for Well, that's the interesting thing. thing. Nobody really knows. Because these were very general. It's like the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law. So the both whole, broad and yeah, so non-specific. I mean, the First Amendment, when it was ratified in, in 1791, right. protects five very important democratic yes. rights. There's two provisions on the freedom of religion that are considered one. So there's five in 45 words. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Forty-five words. So freedom of speech and press. If you isolate those, it's fourteen words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You could have had Twitter been around. You could have written a lot more. James Madison <laughs> could have tweeted, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of the press right. from the first federal Congress right. when they passed it and then mm-hmm. send it out to the states for ratification. That's how short it is. So what can you say? So between the constitutional conventions and the kind of wrangling over various constitutions and the constitution, then to the Bill of Rights. So the yeah. discussion is and must be informed, however, by the history you told, by this forming of public opinion and that people started realizing, actually, we have the, the right to speak out against authority. Well, there are two things going on. One, that we're in opposition to one another. One is the, actually the law and the books. Mm-hmm seditious libel law, which was never repealed, and what had become part of the, the culture, the culture of protests where it was acceptable. Now, when you get to the Constitution in 1787, they meet in secret. Three of the delegates refused to sign, including George Mason. Mason mm-hmm. says, mm-hmm. I'm not, basically, I'm not signing because there's no Bill of Rights. He made a whole list of his right. objections. The objection that was number one is there is no Bill of Rights. And so when the uh, Constitution was sent out for ratification, there was a big battle, of course, between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists. And a lot of the opposition of the Anti-Federalists was on the basis of there's no Bill of Rights Mm -hmm. to protect the people from this big, powerful central government that they had created. And it's like, how can you ratify a constitution that doesn't protect the rights of the people. Didn't we have a revolution about right. these right. powerful governments right. that you know weren't restrained by law? If you look at the constitution from this angle, there's wrangling over this, is it a compromise formation in the sense of that it doesn't address this to sort of say we have to get this passed, so we're going to compromise and not have a Bill of Rights included. Few people won't sign, but at least we'll have something. Right, so the Federalists didn't think much of a Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. They thought it was not needed. They thought a lot of the uh, protections came in the Constitution itself, separation of powers and mm-hmm. limits on the power of Congress, limits mm-hmm. on the executive. James Madison was not initially in favor of a Bill of Rights. He thought that the biggest threat to individual rights and liberties would come from the states themselves, because the Federalist 10, he explains how the biggest threat would be in smaller communities where some powerful leader would come forward or some movement. They have people who are kind of similar, maybe similar religiously or or police. And so they would just overwhelm the minority. The minority, which is the whole Constitution's point to protect the minority. Yeah, and he he was saying that because of his personal experience in Virginia, because he's very much in favor of religious liberty. Mm -hmm. And even with the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which protected religious liberty, uh, Madison's ex- experience was that religious minorities were still discriminated against. Right. The Baptists and right. you know, anybody who wasn't going to the Church of, of England. That was the state of Virginia. And he, mm-hmm. he saw how majorities could form mm-hmm. and overwhelm mm-hmm. a document. And so he mm-hmm. called a Bill of Rights. He, he just kind of waved it off as a, as a parchment protection. <laughs> right? Interesting. So it, could, it could just be sort of blown away with a, a right. stiff wind. And there's an interesting series of letters between Madison and Jefferson. Jefferson was then in Paris, and so they were corresponding back and forth. Jefferson was very much in favor of Bill of Rights. He thought that the people had a right to assurances. Also, by putting it in a document, it would show the values of, of the society. And he was very foresighted in, in suggesting to Madison that 
the judiciary would be a guardian mm -hmm. of those rights. That if, if the rights were enshrined in a constitutional document, that the judiciary would, would enforce that. So you don't Madison, leave it to parliament or yeah. the executive. But Madison, you know, he again, he's focused on the states and he wanted a, the Congress to have a veto power mm. over state laws. That was one of his big things that he pushed right. in the Constitutional Convention, largely because he was concerned about violations of rights. But, and, right. and so Congress that would be made up of more learned, more worldly people, people who understood right. you know, constitutional history and so forth, that was his assumption. They would look at the laws passed by the states and they would think about it and right. if they were if they violated public policy or violated rights, uh, they could be; those laws could be vetoed. But that the the, the convention didn't go with him on that. Right. So uh, ultimately, Madison came around on the Bill of Rights because it was basically was the only way to get the Constitution ratified. Mm -hmm. So people might you know assume that the Constitution had an easy way <laughs> through the conventions, but right. that's not the case at all. The first four or five ratifying conventions went very well. Then it started to bog down. Virginia, I think the most interesting of the conventions, because Madison was there leading the Federalists, and on the other side was George Mason and Patrick Henry. So that was quite a battle. And even then, it was nip and tuck to the end. Uh, they were writing letters out of the convention. They, they weren't sure. They were trying to you know, count noses. And in the end, there were, I don't know, something like 350 votes cast, 350, mm -hmm. 400, something like that. And the Constitution was ratified by about 20 votes. Mm -hmm. I'm so, going to ask you one and, thing about the Constitution. And that's, with, conventions. A, yeah, and that, and that's with a promise that, that there will be a that in the first federal Congress, uh, a Bill of Rights would be considered. I'm going to ask you one question that is, of course, been one of the major questions of constitutional history. So this is a raucous debate, lively debate, important debate among a lot of learned men. What about all the other people living in America? So women, people of African descent, Native Americans, because that'll be a question that actually I think everybody will have. Look, this is a compromise. Yeah. Well, <laughs> These people are not participating was, in this conversation. What's interesting when you look at the extent of discussion of the Constitution, I mean, you, you can look at the constitutional conventions themselves and look at the transcripts mm -hmm. and, and what went on. But all around the conventions were it's just an extraordinary debate. I mean, some historians have called it the greatest debate in American history. Mm -hmm. And there's a series, the documentary, the history of the ratification of the Constitution. There must be, at this point, it's 25 or 30 volumes, I mean, thick volumes. And they collect not only the transcripts of the, the ratifying conventions to the extent that they were kept, but they publish every article, every letter, hmm. every newspaper piece that, you know, anything that was written. And it was just, the volume of material mm -hmm. and much of it, you know, pretty learned stuff. Mm -hmm. They're really discussing serious issues with some knowledge and some reliance on, on, on history and, mm -hmm. and so forth. And there was vitriolic speech mm -hmm. as well, you know, people who violently disagree with one another. But what you saw around ratification was a continuation of the kind of raucous, mm -hmm. wide-open speech you had during the earlier part of the founding period, 1765 to 1776. Mm -hmm. And this is significant because if you want to look at the question of what does freedom of speech and freedom of the press mean, I think it, it makes some sense to consider 
what kind of speech and what kind of press was going on around ratification? Right. Okay. Right. What does it mean? What did it mean to the generation that ratified the First Amendment at a time when seditious libel laws were still in effect, right. and they engaged in the most wide open debate in American history? I, I think. Well, let me put a little pressure on this point. So, in some ways, since we're talking about the constitutional yeah. debates and conventions from this angle of freedom of expression, so it's robust, it's wide open. Ultimately, we will come to understand freedom of expression and freedom of speech as protecting the right of the powerless to criticize and speak against the powerful. At this moment, there is power distributed totally unevenly in favor of these white men discussing it. So what we understand free speech today, it actually protects the voices that aren't public in this sense. They don't publish in newspapers or very few, but they are abolitionists, they are Quakers, they are even then already people would be will consider in a very early way women's advocates you know this is a moment when all over the world you have these this fermenting kind of sense that other people can participate so would you include them in this raucous debate are there voices that we consider today really the voices of which will then lead to you know the next 75 years of difficult history until the civil war really mm -hmm. sort of about who's included in american debate. Well, of course of course there's thought leaders mm -hmm. right i mean there's well-educated lawyers and right. politicians and so forth who are going to the conventions and they take leadership positions but not not everybody in the conventions was a lawyer or, or or wealthy merchant a lot of the people came from rural communities they may have been homeschooled they may not have had a great education in you know english constitutional law and they were more like the common person. I mean, there were, as I said, there were about, what, 350 or 400 delegates to the Virginia Ratifying Convention. One of them was Madison, and one of them was the Henry. Names, the and names we know. Right? Names, names we know, and there were others who were very well-educated whose names we would not recognize. But there were a lot of people from farms and plantations and people out in the what was then considered the frontier because it was a big state, and all the, every part of the state had representation. So they were all represented, and still you had demonstrations in many towns and cities for and against the Constitution, big parades. So there was a, a wide participation. But of course, the leaders, you know, Hamilton and, and, and Madison and Henry and brand name leaders, you know, came out, out to the fore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What happens then with 1791? The Bill of Rights is ratified. We got freedom of speech in America, and everything is good after that, right? <laughs> it doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> so, I mean, give me a sense of the seditious libel. What happens to that particular thing, which, as you said, the court has never really overturned or looked at, but it becomes a law, and then ultimately it's. Undone. So, the Bill of Rights was ratified. So, there was ratifying conventions mm -hmm. for the Bill of Rights as well as the Constitution. And there was never any careful definition of what the First Amendment meant back mm -hmm. then. There were debates. Mm -hmm. Often they were very brief. They didn't get into long explications. Nobody wrote, you know, a thousand-page Obamacare-like guide to what freedom of speech meant. It was still a concept, and people had different ideas about it. And so when you get out of that period 1791, you still had a conflict between the laws on the books and the more popular meaning of free speech. And that really became very evident with the passage of the Sedition Act of 1798, which seems almost impossible that that could have happened seven years after ratification of, 
of the Bill of Rights. Well, American but, history is full, full of yeah, unexpected yeah. surprises, right? It, I mean, what a, what a surprise. <laughs> right. There you had the Adams administration, uh, Federalist. They controlled, obviously, Adams was a Federalist, and the two houses of Congress were Federalist. Uh, Jefferson was the vice president. Interestingly enough, he was a Democratic Republican because that's the way they did elections at that point. They didn't run by parties. Mm -hmm. So Jefferson got the second most votes and became the vice president. What was happening then was uh, kind of a buildup uh, toward a war with France, the first real military crisis in the new nation. And there were a lot of worries about French people already in the country, which led to the passage of the Alien Act. There was worry about people uh, speaking out against the administration and perhaps um, using speech to foment movements uh, internally that you know might get in the way of building up military forces mm -hmm. and fighting France. Of course, the war didn't happen, but the law was passed, the Sedition Act of 1798, which essentially made it a crime to criticize the government. But let me be a little more detailed about the government. It made it a crime to criticize the president, right? He was a Federalist, Adams, or either House of Congress. They were both in Federalist hands. Interestingly enough, it left out the office of the vice president. Jefferson. Jefferson, Democratic, Republican. So it only made it a crime to criticize an office that was held by a Federalist. And this law was party. passed by? By the Federalist Congress, Congress and signed by the Federalist president. And under the law, you know, uh, Adams and his attorney general put more than a dozen people in jail, most of them journalists. Several newspapers actually uh, went under because of that, because their editors went to jail. Matthew Ryan, a congressman, also went to jail. And these were for criticisms that we would read today and, and we'd say, well, what's the big deal? Right. The Sedition Act actually made an advance by, by saying that truth is a defense to a libel claim before it hadn't been. Mm -hmm. But this was, this was a major actually advance is what the libertarians had wanted. They didn't want a seditious libel law, but they wanted protection for, mm -hmm. for a defense of truth. What happened was it was a realization that truth as a defense really didn't get you very far because most of the people who were prosecuted were prosecuted for their opinions. So you, mm -hmm. obviously you can't prove the truth of your opinion. So people had really no defense. And so they went to jail. But the opposition didn't hide under their table, their, their kitchen tables or go into their storm cellars. During the two and a half years that the law was in, in effect, the number of opposition newspapers actually doubled. Mm -hmm. And so I think that indicates something of the spirit of protest that was uh, left over from earlier days. People may have been concerned about the law, may be afraid of it, but it was part of the American culture to protest yeah. what one disagreed with. Well, and what, one other thing I say about the law is it was so partisan that there was a sunset provision. It would expire on its own on the first day of the next administration in 1801, just in case the other side won. And they could then shut down criticism. Right. You point out as you said, as the culture has shifted, but there are really complicated cases. Jefferson then will ultimately try to go against people who criticize him when he's president. And you said initially he favors the Bill of Rights, he favors freedom of speech. He's considered 
the godfather of free speech in this country. He's also the godfather of pseudoscience and institutional right. racism. So he's an ambiguous figure, a bivalent figure. Yeah, but he was. You, you say there's like the culture has shifted, but then on the other hand, the culture is still working things out. Jefferson is a, is a good example. There's a lot of things that he wrote that were very favorable to press freedom. Yeah. You can pick a quote and you can probably you, make him say lots, things in favor yeah, of your there's position. There's lots of quotes, and he was right there trying to convince Madison mm-hmm. that a Bill of Rights was, was critically important. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all up to his favor. What we can also say is for Jefferson and for other politicians, it's a lot easier to be a libertarian on speech when you're on the outside mm-hmm. than it is when you're holding office and you're subject to the slings and arrows mm-hmm. of, you know, the kinds of things that are said about, about people. It's just, it's human nature to get angry, to get, get upset, and you can read in the letters how they're, they're so upset. And, you know, it's human nature to lash out. And so people are not necessarily consistent, right? right? right. And holding the office of the president, as Jefferson did, and suffering the kind of criticism that he did, I'm not making an excuse for him, but it's, it's at least understandable that he might have gotten a little short-tempered, at, at the very least, about about the press that was going against him. And this is, this is true of presidents generally. It's humanly understandable. But as you said, by this time, the culture is moving in a direction, hopefully that will last, that the president can be as upset as he wants to be. So far, it's only been men, so mm-hmm. he can be really, really upset, but he cannot take legal action against the press. That's sort of becoming the press. Well, Jefferson wants to still change that, and afterwards mm-hmm. we have variations of this. Yeah. But supposedly this is the understanding that drives American free speech culture. So, yeah, there's the culture, but it's still possible to prosecute someone because the mm-hmm. states pass laws, mm-hmm. uh, seditious libel laws, generally on the model of the Sedition Act, mm-hmm. um, enabling truth as a defense to some extent. Right. You know, they were used from time to time, but they were there like the, you know, the sword of Damocles, ready, ready to drop. And that was the case for the next 150 years. Say something about what happens in the next 150 years and what happens 150 years after this, which has been in the news recently again. Yeah, so there aren't a lot of interesting things that go on until the early part of the 20th century. There's a number of reasons for that. One is that the Bill of Rights was only applicable to the federal government as a restraint. Right, this Congress shall make no law. So it's not used by the courts to do anything about the states. Yeah, they so, state. so, so they don't cite it at all in the 20th, yeah, 19th so, century. It's right, never so used. So New York State abridged your freedom of speech. Courts you, stayed out you, of it. You, yeah. The federal courts stayed right. out of it. Right, A claim like that would be invisible to the First Amendment, which mm-hmm. was only restraint on federal power. Before we get to the early 20th century, I do want to ask you about one thing, which is in a recent book about the gag rule in Congress about abolition, that from 1836 to 1844, no senators or congressmen can put in petitions to talk about abolition because it overwhelmed the discussion, but it also brought up a topic that they didn't want to talk about, which when we look at this, we think there are things that can't be discussed in the most august political chamber where discourse on the most pressing issues should take place. So for eight years, Congress says we can't talk about the issue that will actually almost divide the union. So freedom of speech didn't help us there. Right. Did it did not it? help I mean, us. The marketplace of ideas was very constricted and so you had a, we had a civil right. war over it. Right. They certainly discussed slavery in the Constitutional Convention. But and it doesn't that come was up a big in, subject of discussion. Yeah. And they leave you know, it out of the of the Constitution. But they didn't resolve it. They they yeah. felt that they couldn't. 
And then, as you said, into the 1800s with the abolitionists, a similar kind of thing. From what I'm taking from your history, there's a general tendency to favor more robust protection of speech. This becomes part of the popular and political culture of this country. Yeah, em emphasizing popular culture. Popular because the culture. Laws, the laws yeah. are still there. And so that's why it's possible to say that the First Amendment really didn't mean wide open right. the discussion. And you point out in 1925, it's 1919, the first time it's cited in 1925 when the Supreme Court looks at state regulation of speech. So it's not until 1925 that the Supreme Court says that freedom of, of the press is subject to the First Amendment in terms of the states. So, right. uh, and that's, that's because the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, applying the Bill of Rights to the states. And then on a case-by-case -case basis, different parts of the Bill of Rights were in legal parlance incorporated into protection. So it's only 1925 when someone who has a problem with their speech rights or press rights in the state of New York or Pennsylvania or whatever state can actually make a claim under the First Amendment as opposed to making a claim only under state law or the state constitution. Which is interesting because when people talk about the First Amendment, I think a lot of times we think, oh, it's 1791 or it's around that time and it's given us this freedom for just about 200 some years now. And then what you just said, well, legally speaking, that's not quite right. No. Legally, it becomes only a tool for the law or a mechanism of the law in the early 20th century. Yeah. And then the history of the First Amendment then jumps from your history to 1925 to 1964 to today and says, and then there's two different versions of this history. One is kind of glorious path toward more and more freedom. And then there are counter histories where people say, actually, this is by now when we have big decisions such as Citizens United, et cetera, I'd say this is a protection of the powerful. So you still have mm -hmm. wrangling over the real meaning oh, sure. of the First Amendment. Sure, and you're having wrangling now over what it means in social media. It raises all kinds of issues about libel and privacy and, and threats, things like that. It's applying long-time concerns to a new medium of communication in which people can communicate things that they couldn't otherwise. I mean, I remember a generation or two ago, the big concern was concentration in media. The, the gatekeepers, yeah. those big corporations that right. guarded the gates of who was allowed to publish, big newspaper conglomerates and broadcasting conglomerates. Mm -hmm. And there were Supreme Court decisions that talked about this. And today, you still have large corporations, but anybody who has internet access and a computer can basically put up their own you know, website, right. their own blog in, in 10 minutes for very low cost. And they can have a voice in the debate as well or sign on to Twitter. Which is different um, from the monopolies of the big three channels or the big newspapers yeah. to Twitter and Facebook, which I think we're just thinking through now. Is this also a gatekeeping function or is it a much more yeah. open marketplace? I mean, anybody can publish today. When I say anybody, anybody who has access to, right, right. to the internet, which of course right. is not literally everybody, but right. people can write their own articles and publish them. In terms of the history you've written, I mean, recently we talked about this briefly, briefly offline. Justice Clarence Thomas invoked the Sullivan Times decision of 1964, which really gives the really strong protection to the press, especially in terms of criticizing the government and through libel laws. So he brought this up recently in a dissenting opinion the end of February. And yeah. The decision in Sullivan and Times was a unanimous decision by the court that says the press should be protected from government punishment. 
And that was a seditious libel law in the state of Alabama that was used that way. It was libel law, which then they yeah. struck down essentially yeah. and said this yeah. can't, this doesn't work with the First Amendment. Right. Sullivan and, was a public official, a police commissioner, who sued um, the Times. Right? Who was sued the Times over an advertisement that was run, and it was this basically a civil rights case because right. it was a. Uh, the right. advertisement was brought to the Times by a whole, you know, a long list of uh, very prestigious and well-known ministers and right. you know, and people from the civil rights movement. So, the Times ran the ad, and the lawsuit by Sullivan was one of a number of uh, maybe as many as a dozen rival suits against media organizations instigated by, initiated by public officials in the South. And it was a, a strategy to deter mm -hmm. big media organizations from covering what was going on. So in, in effect, that, that case was a, a kind of civil rights case. Mm -hmm. um, had that case gone the other, the other way, um, it would have been, I think, too expensive for the New York Times and CBS and other big media organizations to be covering civil rights uh, struggles in, in the South because they'd be subject to, to libel suits, ruinous libel suits, with Southern juries at it, the time. It's an right? interesting civil rights case. What we don't have, that the Civil Rights Activists used the First Amendment to defend their right to demonstrate and speak. Actually, yeah. that happens only in rare cases. Actually, it's a quite interesting study because they use equality law and not First yeah. Amendment law. But if you were to go into chambers or before the Supreme Court and say, I wrote a history on the mm -hmm. founders. I actually know what the court calls the court of history, what public opinion was. And I would say, Justice Thomas, what you're trying to do is he's trying to refer us back to the time of the ratification of the First Amendment and says this never intended for the federal government or the Supreme Court to regulate how states understand libel law. Mm -hmm. Do you think he's right in this too? I mean, not is he right in the reopening, or is there sort of yeah. something that's been missed in this history that you wrote about? Well, he's practicing uh, something called originalism. So this is the, the idea that the Constitution should be interpreted based on what the founding generation mm -hmm. thought it meant. So you have the authority the time, on this, right? At the time. A reasonable and, person at that and so he's, one of the problems with originalism is that it requires justices to be first-class historians. A lot rides on these decisions, obviously. Mm -hmm. And if you're saying that I'm going to base my reasoning on what, what history shows the founding generation or the ratifiers have believed, you have to have a pretty good idea of what it is they believed. And the fact of the matter is that it's hard to determine that mm -hmm. because it was a raucous bunch. I mean, people just disagreed right. by nature. I mean, when you go back and you read what was written, and people wrote back then in a way they don't today. I mean, the volumes of Adams and Madison and Jefferson mm -hmm. that fills the library here, right? As well as many other people in the founding generation. So there's a lot of evidence, and you also had the newspaper articles, and, and there's so much there. And you know, can you really say that it only means one thing, that it only means mm -hmm. what Blackstone said English law? meant, which was, you know, that there was a freedom to publish. But if you criticize the government, that's you were in trouble. I mean, that was the common law of England, which is what Justice Thomas refers to. And yes, that's part of it. That's part of it, without a doubt. But the other part of it is there's a much richer history, which includes what people were actually doing and thinking on the streets. Mm -hmm. in the taverns and in the songs that they wrote, in the engravings 
that they published, you know, Paul Revere and the martyrs like Alexander McDougall and the, the Liberty Trees. I mean, there's meaning in that too. That's part of history and contemporaneous history with the seditious libel law. And so I think if you're going to go back to that period, you're going to say, we have to go back and create a First Amendment that is consistent with founding history, then you better be prepared for all the, the rich history that's there and the inconsistencies that are there. You can't just pick out, well, the law in the books was that you could be punished, right? And it, it didn't include all these protections like a plaintiff has to prove uh, a libel claim with, you know, there was an intentional reckless falsehood. Of course, that wasn't back then. It's something the Supreme Court included in the Sullivan decision, but it has its roots in the protests. So it's a, it's a very rich history. And I think if you're going to rest your decision on that history, you have to take full account of all of it. And the full account, I mean, you are a journalist, you're also a historian, you wrote a book of history and you're trained as a lawyer. So would you say to Justice Thomas, ultimately, when you have to make a decision, as he would say, when an appropriate case comes up, we will look at this again. Would you say, you may be right, Sullivan and New York Times went too far? Or would you say, well, actually, even looking carefully at the history that he wants to look at as an originalist, does what does it support? Where would it fall ultimately to open up this case or to leave it? So the problem is that you had, you had laws, libel mm -hmm. laws, where public officials could sue. And if the writer or the media organization could not prove that what, what they wrote was true, mm -hmm. they lost. Mm -hmm. That's still basically the case in England. Mm -hmm. So anytime you made a mistake, mm -hmm. you lose. Well, that really does not conform with the kind of open mm -hmm. discussion that one has to have in a representative democracy. I mean, we have debate and discussion. Mm -hmm. People make mistakes. News organizations that do investigative reporting can spend six months on an investigation and they can't ensure that every fact in there is accurate, no matter how much work they put in. I mean, something can be wrong mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. we're human. And to hold uh, media organizations or, or writers individually accountable for any innocent mistake that they make chills speech. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It keeps people from speaking. When there's too much liability out there, you keep far wide of that zone. And so you don't say a lot of things. You don't criticize. So what the New York Times decision did was it enabled people to make mistakes and protected them unless, in the case of public officials, unless there was a high degree of fault in making that mistake. That is, something was published as an intentional falsehood mm -hmm. or a reckless falsehood. So innocent mistakes that we all make would be protected, but it would only be really high culpability kinds of errors where, where there was intention mm -hmm. behind the error that would be punished. And I think this has served our democracy very well. It opens up debate. One can obviously say that maybe, you know, debate is sometimes is too mean, too caustic, mm -hmm. but who's going to make those decisions? What's acceptable and what isn't? Mm -hmm. We have an open culture. If you go back and read what was written and said back in the founding period, a lot of it was really, really mean-spirited. I mean, it would sound a lot like what you read today. Mm -hmm. We can have some hope that maybe Justice Thomas would look and read Revolutionary Dissent 
I'm a little less confident that the president would make time to read this book, although he's also interested in reopening, as he said, these yes. rival laws. I want to shift one thing before we close to the website you run, which is really more than a website. So firstamendmentwatch.org. Can you just say something what it is? Because it's a great resource for people, I think, who are interested in all the ranges that this topic touches on. So First Amendment Watch is uh, officially a publication of NYU journalism. And uh, I started it back in October of 2017. And the idea was to cover the current conflicts involving freedom of speech and freedom of the press, of which there are many, not all of them involving President Trump, although he certainly is right there on the front page often enough. But there's a lot of things obviously going on at campuses and with offensive speech and bakers, campaign kind yes. of finance, yeah, abortion clinics. Finance I mean, it covers the spectrum yeah, of and social media, pressing issues. Stuff. Yeah, there's, right. there's so many issues. And so we cover the news and we also provide original legal and historical background analysis as well. And we have outside contributors who write pieces, lawyers and scholars weighing in on, on some of the issues that have been discussed today. We, when we get into a, do a deep dive on an issue, we give all the historical background, we explain the law that's involved. If there's lawsuits, we present you know, the complaints in the lawsuits, mm -hmm. uh, briefs, opinions. So it's, it's kind of one-stop shopping, I think, for someone who's interested in, in keeping up with what's going on in, in that whole area. Yeah, I think it's a, a great resource. I like this roundtable function where you have different people weighing in on one issue, lots of different opinions, actually. They don't agree necessarily. I've read, right. I've read yeah. through all of them, and people yeah. disagree very strongly. Yes. That's productive. And I think it's a useful thing for, as you said, people who are generally interested in all these issues and for teachers and instructors mm -hmm. and students who want to learn more in a kind of sustained way. Well, we have teaching materials on, on the website now. So they are and basically how to teach these issues in different settings, college, high school, what do you have you? Yes. So our approach is that a lot of people teach the cases. New York Times versus Sullivan, for the Pentagon Papers case, for example. And those cases, you know, they're 50, 60, 70 years old, and the students read it and they learn the principles. But what's the exciting thing that we're able mm -hmm. to do with First Amendment Watch is enable instructors to teach those cases and then take the students to the current day. Cases that make the news now, they're in the headlines. Many of them in media that they themselves use, like Facebook and Twitter, because there's so many issues involving that. So they get to apply the principles that they've learned from these old cases, hmm. apply them to what's going on today with libel suits against, for example, Alex Jones and Infowars. Right. Right. And you've for, written about school cases, right? There's been a lot of interesting for students, especially with a yes. political protest, or you wrote about how religious expression is or is not permitted in schools. So right. things that really affect their daily lives. Yeah. So in fact, just a couple of weeks ago was the uh, 50th anniversary of the Tinker case, right. Tinker versus Des Moines, where a, a high school student protesting against the Vietnam War came into class one day with uh, her, her siblings, and they were wearing a black armband, and they were disciplined for that. that case became a Supreme Court case 50 years old today. Well, so which, we had, and we did a special thing on that. And so. it's in many campuses today. If people wear a MAGA hat or yeah. wear an anti-Trump hat or something like that. And what's happened in front of the Lincoln Memorial recently yeah. with these kids on a trip. So this is actually, I think, in their lives very active. Yes. Well, and so the, the MAGA hat and the armbands and the NFL protests, right? So these things are familiar in the world of current students. You take them back through the website to the founding period and they discover that this is the same kind of symbolic speech that the founding generation used when they put up their mm -hmm. their liberty trees and their effigies of the british prime minister well, and the, the devil another reason for 
our president to yeah. read revolutionary yes. dissent. So when he wants to <laughs> criticize the athletes right. <laughs> <laughs> expressing their political opinion. It's, uh, it's a centuries-old <laughs> an form of protest. It really is an American tradition. Yeah. All right, Stephen, yeah. I want to thank you. So Stephen Solomon, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast yeah. today. Thank you for, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.